Look, our brains are great at lots of things, but remembering passwords is not one of them, especially not secure passwords. Let's free our brains from being password managers and get something way better. 1Password. One 1Password one keeps everything private and in sync across multiple devices. 1Password can't see the passwords or sensitive information you store in 1Password, so they can't use it, share it, or sell it, and neither can anyone else. I've been using 1Password for about 10 years now, and it's made my life so much easier, especially using it with Touch ID and Face ID. It's the first thing I install on any new phone, computer, or tablet I'm using for myself or my family. And all you have to remember is one strong account password that protects everything else your logins, your credit cards, secure notes, or the office Wi-Fi password. And I love that something I use to save me so many hours, I can't even count them all, is something you can try too. Right now, my listeners get a free two-week trial at onepassword.com slash beyond for your growing business. That's two free weeks at onepassword.com slash beyond. Don't let security slow your business down. Go to onepassword.com slash beyond. and welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. I'm your host, Eric Fisher, and this is the show where I talk to the people behind the productivity. This week, I'm excited to share with you a conversation I had with Ashley Willens. She studies how people navigate the trade-offs between time and money, and she's done a lot of great research investigating time and money. And in this conversation, we talk all about her new book, Time Smart, How to Reclaim Your Time and live a happier life. And some of the things that we hit on in this conversation are finding time, funding time, and what happiness dollars are and how to spend them. So the gist of this conversation is saving time, saving money, but also spending time and spending money in the ways that will make you feel the most fulfilled and the most happy. It's a really great quick dive into the relationship between time and money and spending time and spending money in the right way. And I'm sure you're going to love it and get a lot out of it. So I'll get out of the way and say, enjoy this conversation with Ashley Willens. Well, this week, it is my privilege to welcome to the show, Ashley Willens. Ashley, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. So <laughs> you have a new book out and it's brand new at the time of this recording. It's called Time Smart, How to Reclaim Your Time and Live a Happier Life. And that's a very simple title, but it's a very big principle. People that know this show knows know that we've talked about time specifically um, often because it's a productivity show. And we sometimes bring in that financial aspect and you're kind of doing a Venn diagram of those things. And, you know, a lot of people talk about budgeting your time like you would budget your money. That's not exactly what you're talking about here, but it's similar. So I'd love for you to maybe explain where did you come up with this, especially since I know you have a PhD in behavioral science. So how do you see that wrapping into uh, or, you know, leading you to stumbling upon this concept of being time smart. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm more than happy to tell you a little bit about uh, how I came up with the idea for the book. It really came out of a whole bunch of research I was doing during my dissertation as a social psychologist 
who considers themselves a pracademic. So I always have an eye toward practical implementation of my findings, not just writing about them for academics, but also thinking about how we can use these findings in the context of our everyday life. Hence, pracademic is how I describe myself as a researcher. And I was doing all this research on time and money trade-offs. So as you mentioned, my book is somewhat about money and somewhat about time, but it's really about how these two valuable resources and the decisions that we make between them can influence our happiness and our time affluence. What I was finding over and over again in my studies, regardless of how rich or poor, where people lived, their background, the people who said they valued time over money reported greater overall happiness, greater relationship satisfaction, and better social relationships. Yet often people kind of failed to realize that the decisions they were making about money and work often had downstream consequences for their time. People who are better at time management, who tend to be more time focused, seem to spontaneously recognize that the small decisions that they make on an everyday basis, such as whether to give up valuable time researching to try to save a few bucks, is something that is a direct trade-off. But in general, we're not always so aware that the decisions we make on an everyday basis around time can have implications for our money or around money can have implications for our time. So in general, I was doing all this research looking at time-money trade-offs, and I really wanted to understand whether I could help people put some of these strategies that I was seeing in my data into practice in their everyday lives. So the book really walks people through this feeling of time poverty, why we always, so many of us feel always overwhelmed with the demands of work and life. And then what are some simple strategies that we can use to give up some of our money, to have more free time or to manage our time more effectively and to make more optimal trade-offs between time and money so that we can feel more in control of our time and live a happier life. This is really identifying kind of a really big pain point for a lot of people, which is I always feel like I don't have enough time and or I always feel like I don't have enough money. It's pretty easy to feel like that and to feel like that. In other words, we're kind of constantly assessing, you know, I've talked with I have a lot of friends who are entrepreneurs or freelancers in different realms. And there's always been this dialogue about what my time is worth. Like if I'm being hired Mm -hmm. and, you know, and, and, you know, uh, even just actually, even just earlier this week, I was talking with a friend of mine and he was convinced by another friend that he should raise his rates and that his time was worth more based on his uh, expertise. Yeah. And I think this is a really interesting idea. And you're totally right that we do often feel both pressed for time and pressed for money. However, my research suggests that regardless of how much money you have in the bank, even though we feel pressed for both of these resources, we're a lot more likely to try to resolve our feeling of being pressed for money than we are to try to resolve our feelings of being pressed for time. We're very conscious of the fact that our time is worth money. We are very sensitive to small losses of money. $50 or $100 of wasted money doesn't go unnoticed by anyone. We're all very conscious of that loss. However, when it comes to time, we often fritter away half an hour or an hour, a couple of hours each and every day to mindless activities and don't even really notice. It's not until we start talking about losses of time that are more in the span of months or years that we start really paying attention. And so that's really why I think so much of my research finds that people who are 
generally a little bit more conscious of time as opposed to money are happier because so many of our default settings are set to focus much more on money, both gaining and losses of money. So gains of money and losses of money as opposed to small losses of time. So all of us can benefit from being a little bit more time focused because society and work culture tends to focus our attention more on money and productivity. So if I hear you correctly, people that are normally listening to this show and trying to figure out how to best use their time are already uh, have a leg up, in other words, because they're thinking about how to manage their time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people who tend to value time over money or be conscious of the finite nature of time are likely to be making t- better time management choices. But all of us, regardless of where we can, where we are starting off, whether we're more focused on money or more focused on time, can benefit from being even more conscious about time than we already are. Yeah, it, it just brings to mind, again, there's a correlation. I brought it up earlier, the word budget. Um, there's this idea, you've probably heard this before, where it's like, I heard it first years ago, um, when it was something called the latte tax or something like that, where a person daily would buy, you know, a Starbucks latte or something and, you know, three, four, five dollars, which they don't think about at the time in terms of how much uh, money that is each individual day. But when they start to think about, oh, wow, that's 30 times three or four or five in a month, what could buy, what could I be using that hundred to $150 for each month slash each year if I was really being aware of my money? But again, to swing that over into time. And I think about those minutes, those hours, you know, that those minutes really do add up, you, you know, your minutes equals your, your half hours, your hours, your days, and even just moments of time each individual day spent the right way in the right direction add up also. And so it, it's very interesting to me, the, the correlation there, but I'm glad that you said that, you know, people that are paying attention to their time and even doing like a time audit, you go even further into the, the time tracking, I guess that's probably not the right word. Time tracking is typically how we describe it, but you go much further into that segment of, you know, doing the data, doing the research, in other words, as to how you're spending your time uh, in the book. There are a lot of different things. You call them time traps that we end up spending time on or losing money over because we're spending the time on them, in other words, also. Yeah. And I think this conversation is a really important first step where we can all improve in our time affluence and productivity or enjoyment in our life more broadly. This idea of doing a time audit is something that as a time researcher is really the first step in living a more time smart and time affluent life. First need to kind of understand where your time is going missing. And although we're much more apt to do this and it's much easier to do this with our finances because we have our credit card statement at the end of our month telling us where we wasted money, it's a lot harder to do this when it comes to time. We really need to sit down with ourselves. I advocate once a week and go through what I call a typical Tuesday worksheet. But you could really do this for any typical workday and really think about what were the activities that you did in the morning, in the afternoon, and in the evening. And then not only write down what were your primary activities, but how did you feel during each one of these activities? Were you engaged? Did you experience positive mood? Did you feel stressed out? Was it a meaningful activity that was somewhat stressful? Or was it a completely unproductive activity that felt stressful? Once you map out not only what you did and how you spent your time, but how you felt about it, then you can begin to think about what are the activities that I want to do more of? 
And what are the activities that I want to do less of because they're either unproductive or stress-inducing? And that's where you can begin to think about, well, if there's something I don't like doing and I can outsource it, maybe I should fund time. This is a strategy I talk about in the book, the idea of giving up money to have more free time by outsourcing. Maybe if there's a stressful and unproductive activity, I could delegate it to someone. I could outsource it. So once you begin to understand what your days actually look like, not what you wish they looked like, but what they actually look like by doing this time audit that you're talking about or this typical Tuesday exercise as I talk about it in the book, that's really when you can begin to implement some of these other strategies I talk about to have more and better time. In terms of how researchers think about this, you want to be maximizing your U-index, or as I kind of cleverly joke in the book, or this was a joke between my editor and I, the Marie Kondo method of time use. You want to think about, does this activity bring me joy? Does it bring me meaning and satisfaction? If yes, I want to do more of that. And if no, how do I get rid of it? How do I either make that experience feel more positive or, or remove it altogether? I love that. <laughs> example does this activity bring me joy is great yeah we don't think I know, about that I know we were, yeah we were definitely had a good time writing that section of the book because there's so much research suggesting you do to be happy you want to maximize the amount of time you spend in positive activities and minimize the negative my book editor's like isn't that like what marie kondo says about uh, minimalism and i was like yeah I, I mean i guess you could think about this as time minimalism so this is the idea that exactly you want to just really make sure that the way that we're spending our moments is how we want to live our lives overall. Well, is there any uh, guidance that you can give in terms of, I mean, I was calling it time tracking, and I know you mentioned doing a time audit. Uh, explain a little bit about what you mean by doing this on a Tuesday or your Tuesday tip there. So you want to be, yeah. So the reason why it's important to do it during a typical Tuesday, Tuesday is a, a day that researchers have found tend to be an average level of everything in one's life, like an average level of work, uh, the average amount that you're going to experience happiness or stress. Tuesdays are sort of it. They're sort of even keel, a, a general workday, an average day. And you really want to be focused on an average workday because that day will have the equal number of constraints that you might face on any day. So if you can make yourself time affluent and happier during a regular working day, where you have all these stresses and strains of everyday life, then this is a pretty good test. You can probably make yourself more time affluent and happier on the weekend if you can do it on a Tuesday. Gotcha. It's like doing a sampling of your week, in other words, on a most standard day. Exactly. Okay. That makes sense. And then is there any kind of approach that might be unique in, in terms of looking at that Tuesday? Typically, people are writing down how much they spend when it comes to budget stuff or, again, the credit card statement like you alluded to. Time tracking, it's typically, okay, I spent this much time on this thing and then this much time on this thing. And, I, and you know, write down every time you kind of switch to a major new thing and then you total it up. I hear the listeners saying, okay, but there's things that I do on a Thursday that I never do on a different day. So, you know, do I need to do it on Thursday also? You can do it on whatever day and how often you want to do it. It's really not, it's really meant to be an exercise to check in with yourself. It's not meant to be a one size fits all solution. Doing it once will kind of solve all your time stress problems. It's really meant to help you be more mindful about the way you're spending time and how you feel about those activities. So it's really a first step in a larger process of becoming more time smart. I think another way we can think about classifying our activities other than positive or negative, meaningful or unproductive is urgent versus important. I talk about the mere urgency effect research in the book, which is this idea that when we're feeling overwhelmed by the demands of work and life, we often 
say yes more than saying no. We'll take on more tasks and we'll say yes to more requests in part because we want to get that initial boost of feeling competent and in control of our schedule that comes with saying yes to something or getting a low-level task off of our to-do list. This is a phenomenon of why your inbox goes to zero when you're working on a major deadline at work because you want that competence boost of getting one thing off your to-do list. So I also talk about the importance of scheduling blocks of time where you work on big rocks, important work, and you free yourself of the distraction of the urgent, but not important. So you want to be catching yourself in moments where you're doing stuff that's not necessarily important, but feels urgent, like checking social media or getting back to a colleague on a project that's not what you should be working on urgently. My collaborators and I have this intervention that we've done with workers all over the world that's very simple and that some of you might already engage in called pro time or proactive time. And this is the idea that you want to schedule one 30-minute meeting with yourself every week, preferably at the beginning of the week, where you're going to plan out what you're going to do in two subsequent two-hour blocks later in the week. So it's really important that you first have this planning block where you kind of lay out what is the most important stuff that you need to get done in a week that's not necessarily urgent, um, that's not an urgent email or checking uh, you know, social media or anything like that. And then you schedule two two-hour blocks of time where you sit down with yourself as if it's the most important meeting in the whole world and you work on these important but not urgent tasks, a major project that's due a couple months out, uh, an education program that you've been meeting to take. And we found that this reduces burnout and stress and improves self-reported productivity. So we want to be thinking not only about filling our days with positive, pleasurable, and meaningful activities, but also making sure we're making time each and every day to move the needle on activities that are personally and professionally important, but might not feel urgent in the moment. That's really important because, you know, not just putting those times in like a task list and saying, oh, I'm going to work on that thing at that time, but like actually putting it on the calendar blocking it out, but not, but you're taking it a step further. You're not just saying, um, sitting down and finding that time, but then you're actually planning that time, claiming that time, um, you know, and, and removing, uh, the possibility that somebody else could claim that time on your calendar that you might misuse that time on their calendar. I mean, people typically, if I calendar something, and I know a lot of people are like this, if I calendar something, then it's, it's more important. It's almost like a contract with somebody else or with myself. Absolutely. And that's why we advocate for putting it in your calendar as a block that is not movable. We've started to even run this experiment at the team level because although my book talks about time management, time poverty, time affluence being something under individual control, which it definitely is, it's also affected by other factors in our life our partner, our kids, our colleagues. And so we started to run this proactive time intervention with these red blocks of time where coworkers know not to disrupt each other at the team level. Because by creating those team level norms, it's going to be much easier to ignore your inbox in the middle of a work day to get heads down time on something really important at work. So also establishing clear norms and communicating when you have those blocks of time on your calendar and holding them really, really carefully, you know, holding fast to them, if you will, so that you really get all of the work done during that time and communicating with those around you is also really important to actually moving the needle and completing 
those work blocks and not getting distracted. That's why we do advocate for putting it in your calendar as well. Something that you were mentioning made me kind of think about this really important idea in behavioral science that I talk about quite a bit, which is the intention action gap. It's one thing to have an idea about doing something. And it's a very another uh problem to solve to actually follow through on that behavior. And so much of the book actually is meant to solve this intention action gap. People ask me, well, obviously, this is something that seems clear, like prioritizing time should lead to greater happiness and productivity than prioritizing money or always looking busy at the expense of having time to work on things that are personally important. This seems really obvious. I said, sure, it might feel obvious, just like we know that exercise is good for your health, but that doesn't mean we're necessarily going to act in line with our beliefs. We know that time is valuable, yet we often get distracted by our technology or suffer from these various time traps that I talk about and get pulled into the urgent as opposed to working on the important. So this is why it's really important to put things in your calendar, to engage in implementation intentions where you write down who, what, where, when, why, and how you're going to complete something. Because in the absence of really strongly committing yourself to something and giving yourself concrete steps to getting there can be very hard if all we have is an abstract idea of how we want to spend our time. Still searching for a great candidate for your company? Don't search, just match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch that busy work. Instead, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. I wish I had Indeed when I was in the hiring process in roles in the past because it is a slow, arduous headache of a process to find the right people or at least it used to be, join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to find and hire great talent fast. In fact, in the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed according to Indeed data worldwide. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash to-do list. Just go to Indeed.com slash to-do list right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash to-do list. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's something that works so well, it basically feels like magic? For me, I'm thinking air conditioning, noise-canceling headphones, definitely. Meeting-free Fridays? What about selling with Shopify? Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your own shop stage to the first real store stage, you don't have to just sell your own stuff anymore. With Shopify Collective, you can curate products to sell from brands you love and give your customers more variety and your business more sales. Shopify is your no excuses business partner. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Shopify also helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort. Thanks to Shopify magic, your AI powered all-star sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash beyond. Again, go to shopify.com slash beyond now to grow your business. No matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash beyond. Is there anything that you can say to somebody who's maybe in a corporate position somehow, somewhere, and is hearing this and thinking, I wonder how 
either my employees are spending their time or could be spending their time better or differently, or are the things that we've set up structurally that are sapping that time away from them when they could be either uh, spending less time on work, but getting more done or somebody who's maybe, you know, again, we're all working from home in our, our, our own personal cubicles, but, uh, we're still spending all this time on Zoom. We're doing all these different meetings. Like, in other words, how does this affect the corporate structure in a healthy way uh, f- towards future better change when it comes to, you know, the, the corporate structure from an employee standpoint, from a management standpoint? What kind of insight do you have there? Yeah, so we've been doing a lot of research during this forced experiment. We're all in and working from home, trying to look at how we can make time And the opportunity of having more time via working from home that's not really being fully realized at the moment, how can we help people feel more time affluent while working from home or working shifted schedules? What we're finding, my colleagues have a great working paper showing with 3 million uh, employees globally that we have more meetings now than we used to because every conversation has to be a meeting. Our work days are getting longer, not shorter. And our days are more distracted. We have fewer long, fewer long work blocks where we can get our critical work done. So taking kind of what our conversation into consideration, what we've been advocating to managers and leaders is to shorten the amount of meetings to decrease the amount of sort of forced social time. One thing that we've observed that goes missing in the virtual work from home environment is these informal social interactions that happen between meetings. Since we're being scheduled back to back to back, with long Zoom calls and not necessarily any breaks in between, these informal social interactions are going missing. So I've been advocating for meetings that run not a full hour, but sort of five minutes before the half hour, five minutes before the hour to allow for these spontaneous social interactions and to be very clear and set very clear norms around breaks, boundaries, and transitions. We never used to expect work calls to start at 8 a.m. because there was the expectation we'd commute into the office. Now that commutes are not happening to the same extent as they were before, we need to encourage our employees to create their own commutes and not allow for scheduling of meetings before the natural workday or at the end of the workday. So we need to be kind of recreating the parts of the workday that we used to take for granted when we we're all commuting to the same place and build them into this virtual work environment, having very clear norms around email communication, the start day, or sorry, when the day starts, when the day ends, a lunch break, and then also very clear norms around the fact that it's okay to ask for more time on adjustable deadlines at work. This encouragement of taking paid vacation, which people are really not doing right now. They weren't doing it before in survey data that we have 75% of working Americans did not take all of their paid and unpaid vacation, but that's getting even worse now because people are worried about their jobs, And there's sort of this idea of where would I go anyway, Uh, this idea of pretending to be on a French uh, vacation in your living room and, you know, only gets people so excited. (laughs) I have heard some funny stories from interviewees uh, during this work from home period of time where they talk about having family vacations in a fake Mexican Riviera in their living room. And like, that's good, but it's not the actual Mexican Riviera. So, um, so that's something that, you know, is really top of mind. So I would say kind of taking all my research insights together, it's really up to managers and teams to create positive norms around time flexibility, to encourage employees to take breaks, 
to create boundaries between work and home so people don't feel like they're living at work, which so many people do right now, and to create mechanisms by which it makes it easy for employees to ask for more time on projects or to take time off. We really need to be over-communicating about time flexibility right now since everyone is worried about working from home and there's a lot of general stress and anxiety in the world right now. Speaking of all that general anxiety and stress and people thinking about things, although they maybe don't want to, uh, this is a perfect time, I think, for people to be taking uh, a look at what they're spending their time slash money on. And I know you have a term for this, which is basically happiness dollars, you know, assigning an income equivalent to what you're spending your time on. Can you explain a little bit more about what a happiness dollar is? Yeah, so the whole reason I came up with this idea of happiness dollars is to help people see that the decisions that they make related to their time can have important consequences for their happiness and to put it in a metric that people care about and understand, i.e. money. So accounting for time and these happiness dollars is a concept that helps people see very concretely how time-use decisions can translate into greater happiness. We know from research that about a $10,000 raise for people making the median household income in the U.S. produces a noticeable difference in the amount of happiness they experience in their lives. So using this number as an anchor point, we can then say, well, what's the happiness income or sorry, the income equivalent of happiness in terms of making all these time-related choices? Very concretely, shifting your focus without changing any of your behavior from being more money-focused to more time-focused produces the happiness equivalent of making $4,000 more of household income per year. Outsourcing your most disliked task to others each month, even netting out the amount of money it costs to outsource whatever it is that you don't like doing, produces the happiness equivalent of making about $12,000 more of household income per year. So you can start to see that all these decisions that we make with our time are having non-trivial impacts to our happiness and potentially creating more happiness than trying to seek out happiness via a raise at work that would be unattainable for so many of us, much more than the 3% that we might be entitled to every year. So the accounting for time idea was really to help people see concretely that the decisions that they're making about time can have huge impacts for their happiness, even more than seeking happiness via making more money. So how does this, you know, I I forget the term that you said it, but being practical... um... Pracademic. Pracademic. Yes. Uh, you, you, you mentioned being pracademic. So I'd love to take this to a really, you know, zoomed in practical level here. What's like one specific example of somebody doing this and making a huge change? And, and because they're looking at it through the lens of money, one, it saves them money, but two, it saves them time. Yeah. So, you know, when I was workshopping the book in different tools, one thing again about the book is it's really practical. There's a toolkit that comes along with it. It's really meant to, again, help you bridge the intention action gap and live like time is your most important resource, not just something that you know you should think about more. And one of the early readers of my book did this accounting for time exercise and realized that they were spending a lot of miserable moments researching their purchases every week on the internet. And this wasn't improving their happiness. It was costing a lot of time and it wasn't saving a lot of money. And so they stopped now being a maximizer, if you will, around how much money they're going to save around small purchases in their house. And instead, they satisfice. They go, they have default options now set up that they make the same purchases every month that they need for their household essentials. I think this is a really concrete example of how 
realizing the suboptimal trade-offs that we're making in everyday life and seeing the time cost relative to the money savings can fundamentally change your decision-making. At least it did for this early reader of, of the Accounting for Time Toolkit. So if I can understand that decision, because I think I've lived through that one myself, um, that instead of being so tightly clung to the idea of, oh, there's this thing that we buy weekly or monthly for our ho- our home. I want to make sure I get the best deal possible every single time. And in fact, that and you use the word satisfice, which is great. Uh, in other words, I'm compromising and I'm going to say, you know what? It's worth my lower stress load trying to figure that out. Uh, it's worth me having a lower stress load to just say, you know what? I'm going to be okay and accept a slightly higher price, but just know that's always taken care of and it's done. Exactly. So you get more satisfaction, more happiness, and save more time to simply put those decisions on repeat and make default similar purchases every month than searching every month for the latest deal. And I see this with my partner all the time where we're constantly talking about this. It's something he really enjoys doing. Um, but even his enjoyment comes at a cost sometimes. So every once in a while, he's doing research and he's finding it enjoyable. But most of the time, maybe I would say like 75% of the time, it's just a bad habit that he has. So he'll be sitting there and instead of us enjoying a nice meal together uh, or watching our favorite TV show, he'll be looking online for the cheapest toothpaste (laughs) at some point. And he's actually changed his behavior as a result of of my book because now anytime either I'm doom scrolling or he's researching for too many minutes, we can call each other on it and say, is that really really the best use of our time right now? (laughs) And usually the answer is no. Then ultimately the bet that you're making is that by saying, you know what, I'm going to afford myself money wise this much more on these products or whatever the expenditure is, uh, per month, per whatever time frame. But that because I'm getting that time back, that time is actually worth so much more than what that cost was that I would have been saving that I was spending my time doing the research on that it, you actually end up saving time, which is, infinitely worth more, but also you're saving money in the long run because you can then spend that time on more important things. Absolutely. And I think this is hitting at a really important point that I want to underscore as well. We can do all this work to find time, to fund time, to reframe time, which is something we haven't talked about too much, which is just the general idea of there's stuff you have to do that's unenjoyable in your day, like doing the laundry or doing the dishes. You can imbue it with positive activities like listening to your favorite podcast to make that experience less negative. But even if we find time and fun time and have more time available to us in our everyday life, it's also up to us to make sure we're capitalizing on that gain of free time that we've just awarded ourselves. So in the example we were just talking about, sure, you might not be spending so much time researching, but maybe then you just end up on social media. So there does involve... In this conversation, there involves a little bit of forward planning. So this is why I started, you know, figuring out how are you generally spending your time, where are there areas that you want to spend even more time investing in, and being very deliberate that in these small pockets of free time that we find ourselves with, either that hour we've saved ourselves not scrolling, researching the best deal, 
uh, or an hour that we are not commuting, we have to be very intentional with that time. Otherwise, it will easily go missing. So that's why I, again, advocate for implementation intentions right down on a to-do list that you keep by your office. What will you do that produces greater happiness and reduces stress if you have a five-minute block of time, a 30-minute block of time, an hour of time? I call this a time affluence to-do list. And it's not something you put in your calendar necessarily, but it's a list of activities, almost reminders of happiness-producing time use activities that you could put into your calendar if you find yourself with a time windfall. I know for myself, if I don't have that list somewhere close to me where I can see it, I might just go through my inbox sort of mindlessly with these pockets of time that I find myself with. But if I have that list available to me, I might go for a walk around the block instead or think about a recipe I want to cook for dinner this weekend. So I'm more intentional and mindful when I have a set of activities I can easily pull out of my pocket that I know are good for happiness and that reduce stress. One of the biggest time sucks that people have, and this was this existed before COVID, but uh, the idea of start next episode, <laughs> that, that it's just sitting there ready to, you know, whether it's Netflix or whatever other, you know, television, in other words, and that, you know, it could, yeah, it'd be great to free up all this time. But then if we just replace it with other, I'll say junk food activities and people will get yes. what I mean, you know, like, that's why I love this list. Yeah, and it really is so important because one of the major time traps I talk about in the book is this constant connection to technology and the fact that we often default to using social media as opposed to thinking about how to be more mindful with our time because it's easy, it's there, it's available, it wants our attention. And so we really need to counteract that by thinking through what are some activities I'd like to do more of today, right now? Where are some areas in my life that aren't work, that aren't productivity focused necessarily directly that I want to invest more in right now today? And then trying to find moments of free time throughout the day to engage in those activities. It's really interesting as a happiness researcher and someone who studies time, so many of us, myself included, before I started embarking on this program of research, think that to get greater time affluence and happiness in our lives, we need to do drastic things, quit our job, move, take a year-long sabbatical. And while those things might get us more time affluence, they don't necessarily solve the underlying root cause of why we feel stress, which is, again, some of the things we've talked about that we default to engaging in these more mindless time use activity habits, especially when we're feeling anxious or stressed out. So what my research really shows is that you know, we don't, to get to greater time affluence and happiness, we don't need to make drastic decisions in our lives. We can, but we don't have to. We just need to think about spending the next 10 minutes, 30 minutes, or an hour in a somewhat different, less stressful and happier way. Yes. Uh, you know, in, in other words, habitualizing that change into those micro, you know, moments, those minutes, again, those minutes really do add up that if you're consistently using those minutes, again, that's why I said habitual or, or, you know, habitizing, I guess. Um, and, and I, you, you talk about this a bit. I mean, in terms of doing a time smart routine, I mean, what would you suggest, uh, people do in terms of making those small changes that really start to turn the ship in a new direction? One thing that I did for myself is change my morning routine. So the very first thing I used to do when I got out of bed was immediately go to my computer and start working on whatever the most urgent, important task was of the day. 
And I've completely disrupted that habit in part to make me think about my life as something beyond productive hours at work. So the first thing I do when I get up is I'll make breakfast. Maybe I'll go for a walk. I'll look at the news. And I purposefully, even though it feels uncomfortable, actively try not to work or check my email for maybe the first 15, 30 minutes of my day. It doesn't seem like very long. However, this active, deliberate choice not to spend my first waking moments working helps me bring a whole new mentality to my day. So because I know I'm, a, I'm someone who's more productivity focused than time focused, I know my default is throwing myself into work and working and working and working and not stopping or taking a break by forcing myself out of this habit in that first moment of the day. I find that this helps me reconsider all kinds of moments and breaks and boundaries in my day that I might not have otherwise. So for me, just disrupting the habit of going straight to work in the morning seems to set me up personally on a more time affluent and happier path for the rest of the day because I'm challenging that idea of always needing to be working a little bit more than I would have otherwise. I've found that um, I can be similar to that. And one of the, well, a couple of things that have done, you know, they're, they're quick little things that I put as an obstacle in my way to getting to that work is to one, not have the phone next to the bed <laughs> when you wake up. Uh, yeah, and, super important. Yeah. And then number two is to make your computer harder to get out and or, you know, open up, et cetera. Like if you have a laptop, put it away in its bag, put the bag, you know, down, you know, next to the desk or different things like that. Even just those couple little extra steps that you've got to take that you have to consciously pick the bag up, open it up, pull the laptop out, set it down, then crack that open, et cetera. Like just having those obstacles in the way, or if it's a desktop, like an iMac or something, like stick the post-it there that says, don't do work till such and such time and that you have to see it before you start logging on to things. Yeah. And this is so important on the weekends too. I, I do this as well. I'll turn off my phone on the weekend. Nice. And then you have to, and then I bury it in a bag. So then you have to think about in my office, which I also don't go into on the weekend. If I have to do a little bit of work on the weekend, I'm not allowed to do it in my office because that will just put me in a time warp of needing to be in here all day. So I don't work in my office on the weekend. I try to create some separation mentally for myself between work, work uh, in quotes, because I'm working from home <laughs> and my personal life, which is my living room, which I can basically see from my home office. But I will turn off my phone, shove it in my bag, and then put it in the office and close the door. And then exactly as you're saying, I have to go through so many freaking steps to get my phone. It becomes usually not that worth it at the end of it. You're like, well, I have to go into this room that I'm not supposed to be in during the weekend. And then I have to rummage through this bag. And then I have to turn my phone on and wait for it to load because it takes forever once it's turned off for a while. So I think anything you can do to add friction into technology use, especially on the weekends or when you're trying to enjoy some downtime is so important. I love it. I know one other thing is that this applies to, although a lot of people, again, they either are completely avoiding this or they're jumping in whole hog, you know, into the deep end on this is thinking about the cost and the, the benefits of those major life decisions. I know a lot of people, I've known people that are actually move, like move states away during this time because they want to, they're like, nope, now's the time. We're going to just do it now while everything's crazy. So, but how, what are the implications in terms of happiness dollars and time and money when it comes to major life decisions? 
Yeah, and I think this point around people using the pandemic as a chance to reflect on what's really meaningful and valuable to them in their lives and to their families is a really important point. We have shown in some of our studies that people are using this moment to reflect and to try to ensure that the way that they're spending their life is consistent with their values. And so maybe that can be one silver lining that some of us at least are experiencing during this time. And I've also known some friends who've moved states and gone to freelancing positions as a result of the current moment. And so that has been one positive experience I've been hearing some people having. When it comes to major life experiences, I have some data showing that people who are more time-focused, so they prioritize time over money, are more likely to gravitate toward careers for intrinsically motivated reasons. So they, they choose jobs or educational trajectories because it's something that they want to do that they feel passionate about versus it feels like something they have to do or they should do to get ahead financially. And that feeling of pursuing a job for an intrinsically motivated reason can have really critical long-term positive effects for our happiness many years later. So trying to think about maximizing your time affluence, pursuing careers because you truly enjoy the work versus you feel like you should be doing it for some financial reward. It's really a good strategy to choosing a career, making a major life decision in general, and the best science sort of backs up this point. However, I will also note that research suggests that we easily habituate or get used to any major decisions that we make in life. And so I wrote a whole dissertation on the importance of valuing time over money and making time money trade-offs in optimal ways. So when I got my first job, the very first thing I did was pay a lot of money in rent to live walking distance to my apartment, right? Because it's like the quintessential time money trade-off pre-pandemic is you want to reduce your commute and live walking distance to work. Now we all just work from home. But you know that was, that was a major life decision at the time uh, when I was making it. However, that lack of commute didn't necessarily translate into greater happiness. I found that after about the first month, the, the direct boost of living walking distance to the office dissipated because I ended up just spending more time at the office instead of filling that time with hobbies or book clubs or going to see talks. I just worked more because it was easier to get home than it had been in grad school where I commuted an hour and a half each way and had to be more deliberate about when I left the office so I could make it in home in, home in time for dinner. So I think, again, we want to be very mindful of the fact that major life decisions, moving, changing careers can make us more time affluent. But we're still going to have to be very vigilant about how we spend the free time that's afforded to us. And that the immediate happiness boost of any of these major life decisions we make will eventually dissipate after maybe a couple of years, maybe even sooner. And so we need to be injecting our time with activities that really protect against habituation, like socializing or exercising on a regular basis. There's so much more we can talk about and there's so much more in the book to dig into. So, you know, honestly, I'd love to just direct people to where they can find out more slash go grab it because this is a huge deal for people right now for sure uh, when it comes to trying to save time, trying to uh, save money for that matter, and use both those resources to their utmost when they both feel like they're in flux right now. Uh, Where can people go find the book? So you can buy the book wherever books are sold near you. Um, It's available through Harvard Business Publishing, also Amazon and other major booksellers. And you can also follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn. I'm fairly active deliberately, hopefully not too mindlessly after this conversation on social media. And I'm really 
part of the a great joy in writing the book is trying to understand understand how people are putting into practice the strategies I talk about in the book. So I do really want listeners to reach out and tell me how they're trying to be more time affluent in their own life and to share their own stories around time versus money decisions. Great. I will make sure to link up to everything you just talked about and directed people to uh, in the show notes. And Ashley, great talking with you. I hope this book's going to make a lot of difference in a lot of people's lives. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was great chatting. Well, that's another podcast crossed off your podcast listening to-do list. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Ashley Willens. I know that I did. The book is enlightening and very helpful, especially when so many people are thinking surface level about time and money right now, but also deep thoughts or introspection and macro level thought processes when it comes to time and money. And so this is a great book at a great time. I highly encourage you to check it out. You can find the link to the book in the show notes for this episode at beyondthetodolist.com slash 348. There you can also find the buttons to share this episode with somebody. Would you do me that favor? Think of that person who you know as you were listening to this would really benefit from this episode and share it with them. You can also share it from the podcast player app of choice that you're listening to this on. But either way, thank you for sharing if you did. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next episode. Thanks for listening to the end. If you're looking for a show to start helping you apply these productivity lessons on your business, check out Millionaire University. It's real lessons from real entrepreneurs teaching you what you need to know to improve your business or start one if you've been putting it off. It covers all aspects of business from starting, marketing, growing, managing, and everything in between, wearing all the hats. And as an added bonus, I am conducting a number of those conversations, those interviews, so you'll fit right in. Again, that's Millionaire University. Just search for it in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast.